0: Hockey Mountain High, your go-to avalanche podcast presented by Superbook Sports and Total Beverage in Thornton and Westminster. J.J. Jerez, Araf Dean here. We had to come back and break down that Minnesota victory because I felt like on our Sunday podcast, we got so in-depth on previewing that game and we hit so many things on the head that we had to come back and and really get into it. And, you know, honestly, I think it was a uh somewhat of a pivotal win because you don't want to go down 1 and 2 like I know this team is good and they're going to ultimately end up with a winning record and in the playoffs but going down 1 and 2 early you just don't want to get two two back-to-back losses and and just start off on the wrong foot like that so Arif, how you doing today let's break down this game
1: I'm doing great and the Avalanche I mean it was a very weird game but hey you won 6-3 that's great so the Avalanche are doing great too <laughs> and
0: and that overhit right so I hope all our betting listeners out there are doing great as well because they listened to us and took the over because that was an easy one
1: yeah that was pretty much one of the more given the fact that it was Gustafson that was going to be starting for the Minnesota Wild and the way that their season has started and the fact that it's early season silly hockey which we saw from the kind of goals that both teams were scoring 100% um,
0: bouncers everywhere yeah
1: you you just knew that it was the over was kind of a gimme there
0: indeed indeed so uh, a big focus of our Sunday podcast was how that second line is forming, how they're developing their chemistry, and i guess I guess just how they're progressing throughout the season here so I wanted to start today's podcast with just a conversation focusing on that second line again and just how they did obviously circumstances were different they didn't have the four a m arrival and um weren't on a back to back and all that jazz, so a little bit more of a a normal assessment if you will so what would you think of the second line and uh yeah, just get into it.
1: So second line, Valerian Nechushkin is still creating a lot on the power play and at even strength. Um, again, this is something I talked about all summer, man. Like, What Nechushkin did last year was not an aberration. This is who he is. He has grown into a player that is going to be a bargain at $6.125 million and is very much deserving of that contract. He's already got uh, six points on the season. And we're only three games in. He's been unbelievable. I believe it's three goals, three assists. So, you know, it, it kind of shows in the time on ice how much the Avalanche are loving Val game right now. The fact that he's playing shorthanded minutes, power play minutes, and at even strength, he was up to more than 15 minutes of ice time. When you compare that to the other two guys on the line, Evan Rodriguez played 1439, only 1358 at even strength and uh Alex Newhook played a very low 12 26 only 11 43 at even strength so once again the avalanche are slowly giving Newhook and Rodriguez some time. Rodriguez you can tell he's kind of growing into his role taking a lot of shots throwing everything on net um,
0: and I think I five texted on yeah, goal yeah 5 on goal I think I texted night. you
1: I texted you during the game about how like he really does throw everything on net and he found some nice lanes yesterday, but, um, and yeah, he had five shots and, and I think, you know, the avalanche, like I said on, on Sunday's episode, they're slowly growing into kind of like working off of that and being ready for those rebounds, which we saw more of against the wild. Um, but Alex Newhook again, that leash is long. They're going to give him time. I'm, Every time I talk about him and the fact that he was quiet and invisible, that's not me giving up on him or calling him a bust. It's just stating what I saw. And what I saw was another game where New Hook wasn't much of a factor. And uh, that's something that the Avalanche will hopefully see kind of improve here.
0: Indeed. I guess I'll touch on Val Nichushkin first because I think you're right. <clears throat> what he did last year isn't an aberration because you're seeing him replicate that already in the, in the three games we've seen this season, right? He's not doing it in flashy style. It's almost very subtle and quiet, just his nose to the ground. That's not the saying, uh, but you know, you know what I'm saying? He just, he grinds it out, right? He he does the hard work and he, and he gets it done. Again, it's quiet. It's not like, wow, look at Val Nichushkin go. It's more just, uh, you know, him using that big body of his and trying to, to get around people. It's amazing how good he is at taking people wide, right? Go going yeah at that size and, you know, I wouldn't call him the fastest player, but he's got a long, powerful stride. So when he takes you wide, it's kind of hard to keep up with him when he, you know, he spans his stick out there, holds it away from his body and, and it's hard
1: to reach. That's what makes him so good at three on three is he takes a player wide and there's only one player to take wide because it's a three on three and it's you know, usually you're playing man to man defense. So uh, I did say his stat line wrong in the beginning. It's not three and three. It's four goals and two assists in three games, uh, which includes, funny enough, a shorthanded goal because that's what the empty netter was. And hey, the other three goals are on the power play. So five on five, nothing yet. Obviously, that kind of speaks to the line he's been playing on. But uh, special teams, he's getting a lot of goals there. So he's he's so good at, at taking people wide. He's so good at shielding the puck with his body. And and again, like the biggest thing for me is... He was a 2013 tenth round draft, a tenth overall pick, nine spots after McKinnon. So if you're thinking about, holy crap, we gave this guy eight years. That's pretty much in line with the fact that McKinnon's eight year deal starts next year. It took him a little bit longer to find his stride and his his spot, but like, I'm so confident in who Val Nachushkin is and the fact that he's going to be a factor for the next half a decade or more, playing the role he is, making the money he is, and it's 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 only like. You're you're seeing it every single game. Like he's blossoming more with each passing night.
0: You brought up something I think we need to touch on a little deeper, and that was the time on ice. I mean, between the three guys, there's a huge difference in the time on ice, especially at, at, looking at Val Nachushkin. I mean, you even look up and down the lineup: J.T. Comfort, Logan O'Connor. Um, you know, a lot a lot of the quote unquote depth forwards are getting more ice time than Alex Newhook. So the discrepancy in ice time on that second line is, is interesting to see as they kind of ease Newhook into the role.
1: Yeah. So Comfort didn't play any power play time. It looks like they're really, really sticking with that three defense and Newhook and Rodriguez, which is fine. Like I, I don't have an issue with that. The one that the number that I like to look at is the even strength time on ice. So that's where I kind of determine. At five on five or whatever, four on four, three on three, blah blah blah. Who are the Avalanche using? And obviously, the top line was the top line. Lekkinen played over sixteen, Rantanen over eighteen, and McKinnon over nineteen. And then on that second line, Nichushkin was at fifteen fifty five. Rodriguez, like I said, thirteen fifty eight, and Newhook at five on five was only at eleven forty three. But when you look at what's supposed to be the third line, Newhook, sir, you know, beat out Cogliano, who played eleven oh four but Comfer was up to 14 minutes and 12 seconds and O'Connor was at 1230. So Newhook right now is the eighth most used forward. So that's kind of the you know the second of 3 on the what should be the third line in terms of time on ice at even strength. Obviously I don't want to count in shorthanded time or whatever because that's where Comfer really pads his numbers with 3 minutes and 13 seconds on the PK which you know Ideally, you want Newhook to grow into a PK guy because that just means he's even more valuable. But we'll see where it goes with that. Moral of the story, the Avalanche right now, they trust guys like O'Connor and Comfer more than Newhook at 5-on-5. Five five. And uh, again, it's very reminiscent of Carl Soderberg, Matt Calvert, Blake Como back in the day when the Avalanche were like, hey, these guys – you can trust them. You know what you're going to get from them. So if we see a young Kerfoot or a young Jost or, coincidentally, a young JT Comfer who's now grown into that Soderbergh role, so to speak, if we see them not really up to par and up to snuff with where we want them to be, we have this more dependable, less offensively gifted, but more dependable line that we can use. And that's kind of what they've been doing. And ultimately, that's what's going to keep happening until, you know, New Hook grows into his role and until Landis Gog's back.
0: And they're going to continue to improve together, right? I mean, I remember last year during the first couple rounds of the playoffs, you and I discussing, Jared Bednar mentioning how great it was to be going through these lessons and gaining experience while also winning, right? And that's kind of what you have here again. So it's good that the Avalanche are getting victories while this second line is still kind of figuring themselves out. And as long as uh, the victories keep coming, I don't see any reason for change, right? I think they could keep trying this out until you have determined it's broken and everything needs to shift. Or like you said, uh, a Gabe Landeskog or even Darren Helm comes back and you have to yes. readjust what the lineup looks like. So I, I like it. Keep moving forward. Uh, you know, change nothing for now.
1: Yeah. And the big thing for me is Val Nichushkin's, uh growth over the last 12 months, ever since he returned from injury to start last season. And uh, the acquisition of Archery of really helps a lot because if you remember pre era of, you know, pre-summer of Donskoy, Burakovsky, and Kadri, and Nichushkin, the Avalanche relied so heavily on 96, 29, and 92. That line just, they ran the show. But now what you're seeing is, because of, you know, Landeskog's out, but because of Nichushkin and Lekkonen growing into, like, being part of that group of, like, these are our upper echelon forwards, um, yeah, they're separated from McKinnon, Rantan, and Landeskog, but not by much. Well, now in a game where... You don't really have much of a second line. McKinnon's not playing 23, 24 minutes. He played 21, 21. Rantan just barely broke 20 at 20 oh three. Lekkanen 1901 and Nechushkin 1951. So like the biggest worry that I had going into the season, if you remember, was well, while they're waiting for these depth guys like Lekanen, or not Lekannen, sorry, but Rodriguez a new hook to grow, does that mean they're gonna start to overplay that top line again? Which is not really the best recipe for success heading into the playoffs. Like, that's what made Kadri such a big piece last year was knowing you can rely on him. Well, that doesn't seem to be the case because McKinnon playing only 21 minutes and Ranton in 20 and Nichushkin 1951 in a game where it was pretty close right to the end. You know, the Avalanche were up by a goal for most of the night and then up by two goals and then add an empty netter. Given the fact that it was that type of game, they didn't need to overplay them. And it's partly because. Comper and, and O'Connor are such reliable players, you can throw them out there. And because Natushka and Lekkinen have grown into their roles, you know, the way they have over the last year.
0: Yeah, and it doesn't hurt what Minnesota's going through. I mean, I'm, I, I think I saw Tyson Jones playing first line yeah, last night. Yeah, big yikes. Yeah, big, big yikes. yikes. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think that's enough on the second line, I guess, for two podcasts. Uh, <laughs> a, a, a big part of their uh, their winning in Minnesota yesterday was. The defense again, right? I mean, back to their ways of generating offense from the blue line. You saw it with uh, EJ, you saw it with Manson, even Gerard getting in the mix. So, um, yeah, just getting back into the into the normal structure of generating offense from the blue line.
1: There was a quote that I had yesterday that I posted. It was something that I asked Eric Johnson about. So, going into opening night, the night before when the Az were practicing, I asked EJ – you know, it was either Monday or Tuesday of that week last week. I asked EJ about the fact that like, hey, this team is so stacked on defense now. And you guys have lost a lot of offensive weapons. Not to say you guys aren't going to score because you have McKinnon and Ranton and Landeskog and so on. But is it safe to call the Avalanche now a defense first team? Like when we look at the Avs now, we're not like, oh, they're firepower. We say that. But we also say, look how stacked their defense is. Best blue line in the NHL. I asked him that and he summed it up in like one sentence And uh, basically what he was trying to tell me is no, dude, we're not a defense first team. We're still the offensive powerhouse because all he said was as a defensive unit, we're going to do our best to pitch in offensively and we can do it. So like basically what he's saying is just because we lost Berkey and Kadri, it doesn't mean we're going to lose our offensive punch. The blue line is so good defensively, but we can make make up for that offense as well. And that's exactly what you saw yesterday. Like how great a game did Josh Manson have like they were speaking like, you know, highly of him on altitude all night for those that watched the the Avalanche broadcast like, like you and I did. But he was incredible, dude. He was in the, every single play. He almost scored a second goal at one point. He was in everybody's face like it was a very uh, typical like the prime of Adam Foot type of game defensively and in terms of, like, getting in the getting in all the rough stuff and really pissing off somebody else and pissing off the other team. But he also got a goal, almost got a second one. He was being really smart with when to jump in the play. Bowen Byram was covering him when he did jump into the play. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, man. Having Josh Manson for a full season and make that four seasons is is going to be a treat.
0: Yeah, I would say that for the whole defensive group. They just look themselves and they look at, at like they're performing at a hundred percent right now right I mean seeing Z- Sam Gerard get back in the offense yep. and um just watching Kale McCarr right I, I mentioned last week how he has eyes on his stick blade you saw that again last <laughs> night you saw EJ doing his EJ thing and yeah Josh Manson getting in there you know because Minnesota was they were Kind of being bastards, right? Towards especially towards the end of the game, they're pissed off. They're zero and three, and yeah, you need a guy like Josh Manson to say, "Uh, uh, not today." Kind of like he did with Kadri last year, right in the playoffs. I'll never forget that moment, and really just tells you exactly who Josh Manson is. He's a guy that loves to play hockey, but he loves to stand up for his teammates as well. Just, just what a guy!
1: And he's so good at it. He's like he's not the biggest guy on the skate on skates. He's not the biggest guy off the ice. When you see him, he's just a regular looking guy. He doesn't look like a towering Curtis McDermott by any means. But that guy has no chill. Like he will go after anybody. It doesn't matter who you are. He will go after you, and he does an ex- excellent job at it. Um, the biggest thing that I saw in the defense yesterday is like this again this goes back to how stacked this blue line is we're talking about sam Gerard having a good game he had a goal and assist plus two rating four shots on goal which was third on the team behind mckinnon and rodriguez uh which will probably be the norm now mckinnon and rodriguez uh but just out of the blue do you know how much time on ice this guy had sam gerrard 1502 Look at you taking a second <laughs> to look at the stat sheet. He only played 15 minutes, and Eric Johnson only played 14-something. That's how stacked this blue line is. The fact that – oh, and by the way, Bowen. so like Bowen Byram obviously was up there, Nathan McKinnon – or not McKinnon, McCar, Taves, and then Josh Manson played 17-17. So like there's only so much ice time to go around and when you're this stacked, your third pair, which includes a Sam Girard, is only going to get 1502. I know Eric Johnson's kind of you know top five and then he's number six and it's a big separation there. But he played 1441 and his D partner Sam Girard only played 1502. There's just so much ice time. There's only so much ice time to go around. And to see that your fifth highest defenseman that played 1502 is a guy with the skill level of Sam Girard, who had two points and four shots and was, you know, noticeable in those 15 minutes. Really goes to show just how deep this core is, because you can trade Sam Girard to seemingly any team in the league, and he'd probably be their top line uh, defenseman. Like it's it's crazy how stacked this blue line is, and it's crazy how much they can pitch in offensively. More than anything,
0: right? That's where the, their value really lies. I mean, they're so good offensively, at the same time being extremely responsible defensively. I wouldn't say anybody, you know, maybe aside from Devon Taves, I wouldn't say any of them are like, wow, what a defensive play. Kale McCarr has spurts, but I think they're just so responsible and sound that you don't really ever have to have a discussion about their defensive side.
1: Yeah, I mean, like someone like Josh Manson, you rarely ever notice him defensively, and that just means he's doing his job. Because right. with a defenseman, you don't want to be noticed when you're doing your job defensively. Because when you're noticed when you're doing your job defensively, it's when you're on the wrong side of a highlight reel, like that holy shit play where Ryan Hartman almost almost made uh Kel McCarr look silly, but just couldn't find you know, finish that sh- that chance he had on the on the shorthanded opportunity. But like it's it just really speaks volumes at how good this team is. Devon Taves is the captain of those kinds of players, and then these other guys, in terms of Eric Johnson, Josh Manson, are just so sound defensively. And I'm not even including Byron, McCarr, and Gerard, who are offensively gifted, but also play the game well defensively and are really great at it.
0: Yeah. And on the Altitude podcast, back to Gerard, um, you know, they spent a little bit of time just talking about how he's still so young, 24 years of age, and has recently surpassed the 300 game threshold, right? He's at 343 now. Um, I still feel like you know the, the common saying is that that's when defensemen come into their own, and you really know what you have in a defenseman right around that 300 game. But I think with Sam Girard, the, we still haven't seen his ceiling. I still think there's room for improvement, room for growth, especially from a, a mental standpoint, a hockey IQ standpoint. I mean, he's still so young, he's still learning, he's still growing. I don't, I don't think 300 is adequate to say this is who Sam Girard is.
1: Yeah, and the reason why that is is because he was a factor at the young age of 19. So like, usually when a player gets to the 300 game mark, he's in that 24, 24 and a half range uh age that, you know, Sam Gerard is right now. He was born in May, it's October, so he's 24 and 7 months. Just to give you an example, Kel Macar is going to be 24 in October. He's going to be 25 when the or sorry, he's going to be 24 and 7 months, the same age Gerard is now. That's where Macar will be when the playoffs begin. Well, Kel McCar's only played 181 games right now. So if he plays every game heading into that uh heading into the playoffs, he'll only be at 260, which means next season, halfway through next season, assuming McCar doesn't miss any games, at the age of 25 is when he'll hit 300 games. So usually a defenseman that 300 game mark is, is is when you know what you have in a defenseman because that's usually when he's in that ripe age, that 24 to 27 age of the prime. That's where McCarr will be when he hits 300 games. But because Sam Gerrard started so early, because if you remember up until he missed some time uh, in uh, against Vegas, that outdoor game a couple years ago with COVID, and then last year he got injured, he was that avalanche Ironman that never missed games from the time he was acquired until 2021. He didn't miss any games. So he's not he just turned 24. He's already well past 300 games. By the time he's 25, he'll be at 400 games. It's just it just goes to show how early he came into the league and why yeah, like you said, he still hasn't reached that prime yet even though we just spent 10 minutes kind of pumping his tires at how good this guy is. Like there is still more to give from someone like Sam Girard and the fact that the Avalanche have him locked up at the deal they do it just goes to show how how important a piece he is to this roster that you can stick him on the third pair knowing very well he's an excellent player there. He'd be on the top line anywhere else pretty much, and there's still room for growth.
0: Yeah, he he reminds me of the old-school NBA where you were allowed to come out right into the league out of high school, right? He was kind of one of those guys, almost came out right out of high school and uh you know kale mccarr goes spends two years in the ncaa so you know that that kind of leads to that unevenness and when kale mccarr plays 300 versus sam gerard playing 300 but you just forget how young those guys are when they come out that young and they step into the league at 19 sometimes 18 years old you forget six years past he's still 24 because he doesn't look like it right he yeah he doesn't strike you as a 24 year old he, lo- he looks older he acts older and uh yeah i'm 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 still excited to see where his growth leads, and I think that, that
1: can come this season. When he played with the Avalanche after that Matt Duchesne trade, the Sweden games where he made his debut, he was 19 years old and about seven months. Like, he was really young, and he was a regular with the Avs right from the get-go, and he he played with Eric Johnson. Like, he was playing top-line minutes for most of that time. So, yeah, there's a lot more room for growth, but it's just wild to think at how young this guy is given the fact that he's been around for that long.
0: Yeah. I've got 10 years on the guy. That's crazy. Insane to me. Um, Let's take a quick pause in the show to talk about our friends over at Superbook Sports. Guys, football is back, and nobody is more excited than your friends at Superbook Sports. Superbook is bringing Vegas-style wagering to the palm of your hands, and now they will match 100% of your first bet up to $1,000, no matter if the bet wins or loses. You don't have to be at the stadium this Fall to enjoy football. Visit superbook.com or download the Superbook Colorado app right now and start getting in on all the action. Visit superbook.com for terms and conditions. Gambling problem, call 1 800 522 4700. Now, time to get to the conversation you know I hold near and dear to my heart, and that's goaltending. Arif, we got to get into Alexander Gorgiev. Having some good games, I would say. Um, You know, what? before I give my two cents, I want to hear just your analysis on on how good he's playing right now.
1: He was great. I think uh, against the Minnesota Wild, it was finally the first opportunity that he had to make big saves because he finally faced big chances and uh, you started to kind of see where he can shine. Like when the Avalanche were under pressure, uh, I don't remember what period it was with that crazy-ass sequence where he had to make a whole bunch of saves. Uh, It may have been the third period, I think it was, when it was a one-goal game.
0: And the final save of that Ended up right in his stomach, right? He's and not he flopping just, on his side. I,
1: I don't believe he had a stick in his hand either, right? Right. Just a I mi- think he just n-
0: swallowed the puck. No miraculous saves, and that, in my opinion, is a top 10 save. The fact that, that it hits him square in the chest. And who used to say that? I don't know, me?
1: Patrick Waugh, not yeah. you. The the other guy who's better than you at goalie. Uh, Patrick Waugh used to say that. Patrick Waugh used to always say when he was a player, for those that weren't around or you know weren't paying attention to hockey when Patrick Waugh was still playing, frickin' 19, 20 years ago, um, Patrick used to always say that, you know, I'm not interested in the highlight reel save, because to me, the best save is when it hits me in the logo. And where's the logo? And the Avalanche logo is nice and big. When it hits you in the logo, that's a good save for someone like Patrick Wah because it means you're positionally sound. So you can tell that that was him in his prime, taking a shot at guys like Brodeur and Hashik and guys like that, that flop around to make their nice saves. And Especially like, no. Hashik. Yeah, and he's just like, no, I'm so good at what I do that it's going to hit me in the logo. And he used to always say also that when the puck hits the post, it doesn't mean that the player just missed an opportunity and uh, put it wide. It means I cut off his angle so much that that's all he had to shoot at. Obviously, there's going to be those highlight reels where you see it in the bloopers where a player has a wide open net and hits the post. That's not what Patty's talking about. It's when he's square to the shooter and the player hits the post behind him. It's not, oh, bad luck if you were just an inch to the left. It's, well, if he was an inch to the left, it would have hit me because I cut off his angle. So, like, those are what makes a great goalie. And, and those are the things that you love to hear. And those are the things you love to see from Georgiev is that he was positionally sound. He made that final save, just kind of shut it down. No more rebounds, no nothing. Just swallowed the puck, and the play was done.
0: I broke it down in my preseason analysis of him, right? He has no quit. He will fight for every single puck to the very end. And he'll do it in a a positionally sound way. The other thing I pointed out in that little assessment is how he kind of struggles on the penalty kill. Now, he's led in five goals so far this season, four of which have been on the penalty kill. Now, of course, Mm -hmm. you don't want to judge him because, of course, penalty kill, you're a man short, you need killers to help you. You remember that Jonathan Taves backdoor goal to start the season, right? Nothing he can do about that. So I think you can judge him a little bit on just how good he's playing five on five. And I don't think you throw stones at him yet just because of the, pen- the penalty kill numbers. But it's something to keep an eye on. I mean, if he continues to struggle and the team continues to struggle in front of him on the penalty kill, I think that's something to worry about.
1: Yeah, for sure. And again, it's still early, and the PK and the power play kinks are still being worked out. Like the Avalanche are scoring more power play goals than they're going to. You know, they're, they're they're operating at a power play pace that's not going to be sustainable. They're also surrendering shorthanded or penalty kill goals at a pace that's not sustainable. Um, their PK is doing about as good as it was for me to try to say what I was just trying to say while flipping over my words 15,000 times. So that was a hard sentence to come out. But I'm still working out the kinks just like they are in special teams. <laughs> so you're going to see it start to get better. Um, you're going to see guys kind of settle into their roles. Um, especially when they're healthy, when Darren Helm is back, when the guys are kind of back to their original positions. But I wouldn't ter- worry too much about that. I know it's, it's interesting that that was something that you had uh, talked about in the offseason. I remember that now, but uh, I wouldn't ter- worry too much about that right now. The most important thing for me is you win and you lose games in hockey at 5-on-5, five five, at even strength, and in the playoffs, that's where you have to be your best. And the fact that he surrendered one five-on-five goal in two games and it was against the Wild, was it Kaprizov, I think, um, that just goes to show just how good uh, Georgiev has been. And again, I know the Chicago game is a wash. Like, I'm not judging him based off of anything in that game because it was a bad Blackhawks team that had 17 shots and their only good chances were on the PP when they scored. Um, But what I've seen so far from him against Minnesota in a game where he faced 39 shots, where the Avalanche didn't shelter him, and keep him to just like 15 or 20 or 25 shots. He was he was solid and he was strong.
0: Again, with wins, it's all okay, right? As exactly. long as you're going through these problems and still pulling out victories, it's nothing to really dwell on. So, um, yeah,
1: what yeah. I'm excited for most to see with Georgiev is look, the Avalanche have the Jets on Wednesday tomorrow and then they have the Kraken at home Friday and the Golden Knights on the road Saturday. I'm really curious if Frankie gets that game Friday against Seattle at home, probably against Philip Grubauer, and you have Georgie play Winnipeg, and then you have Georgie play a good Vegas offense on Saturday, and then three nights later, a good Rangers offense on Tuesday. So, like, those are the games that I'm excited to see. How is Georgie going to do against the Rangers? First of all, his former team. Second of all, a strong offensive team. And how is he going to do against the Golden Knights if he plays that game against Jack Eichel, Phil Kessel, and all these guys who are suddenly scoring again? So we're starting to get into that part of the season where we're going to see just how good this guy is.
0: Yeah, I'm excited for that Ranger matchup. Hopefully he gets the start and, and, you know, has an extra little bit of fire in his belly, even though we know he already has a constant fire in his belly. Just like, I want to show these guys, because that's who he is, right? He's a very... You know,
1: he's a fire in his belly kind of guy.
0: Yeah, I'm going to show you guys <laughs> why I should have been your starter. Love this talking Sturkin guy.
1: Yeah, and and just as an FYI, the pre preseason story that I wrote about him that we talked about on the podcast will be up here in the next couple of days as soon as the magazine comes out. So that'll be a good read as well.
0: Excited for it. Excited for it, and excited to see how he. Uh, continues to grow just like everybody it's still young in the season guys are still blossoming and this already good team is going to continue to get better i mean and that's what i took away from the minnesota game right even while they're still not at 100 percent, they're still completely dominating the game from start to finish um never never really lost control of that one
1: yeah exactly so they never trailed they were they were it was just a solid game. I know there were some goals that were funky ones that went in on both sides, especially for the Avalanche, man. Gustafson led in some bad goals, but despite the fact that Minnesota's 0-3, losing all those games at home... By the way, this is a team that was 31-8-2 at XL Energy Center last year. They're already 0-3, so they've only got five more regulation losses to give to, to be worse than they were at home last year, which, again, 31-8-2 is, is, is unsustainable. They were exceptional at home last year. But... Um, to beat that Minnesota team at home, despite the fact that their on three is always a good game in my books.
0: Indeed, uh, one last thing I wanted to touch on is Curtis McDermott has been playing a lot of forward lately. Uh, yeah. I think he really made an impact yesterday, making some noise around the net. So. Um, you know, good to see Curtis McDermott. I like him so much more at forward than I do defensively Um, just because... Less he,
1: responsibility.
0: And less of a liability, right? If you make yeah. an error down in the corner, you're okay. You make an error at the blue line, chances are it's a two-on-one yeah. the other way. So... Yeah. um,
1: Yeah, the wingers are the... The wingers have the most leeway to make defensive mistakes and mishaps in the offensive zone because you have a centerman and two studs on defense on the stacked blue line that can cover for you. So... I do like him more there as well for that reason.
0: Yeah, and I think he's been playing well. It's fun to see him. Yes, it's good he's to doing see him on role. the ice in a game against Minnesota too, right? When they start yep. acting silly, he's there just in case.
1: Like, hey guys, hello. You know, hey. Josh Manson will kick your butt, but we'll, like, I'm here too.
0: Yeah, they've got him at the uh, practice rink. His locker stall is pretty close to Miko Rantanen's, and and the mm-hmm. other day I go to hop in in an interview with Miko Rantanen. And I guess I was standing a little bit too close to Curtis McDermott, where he. Didn't feel like he had enough room to tie his skates. I thought he had plenty of room, but he gave me a look like, hey, give me more room. And I almost wet myself.
1: Yeah. JJ left the locker room, left family sports, got in his car, <laughs> and drove 50 miles away from Curtis McDermott. and was still like, oh, dear God, he's breathing down my neck.
0: <laughs> I just stopped at a Walmart parking lot and cried. Uh <laughs>
1: Um that's it. We're done. Yeah, that'll do
0: it for today's episode. Thanks for hanging out. Just a quick hit in the midweek. Um we'll be back. We're going to do a post-game podcast from the Winnipeg uh game at Ball Arena. That'll be a fun one and just to kick off our post-gamers. Uh we're not going to be doing them every game, but we figure the uh what do they call them? The primetime games, right? Any yep. nationally televised game, any hockey night in Canada, any big game, you will have that a post-game Rangers
1: game next week. Oh yeah, there'll be some fun ones coming up.
0: So, uh, yeah, don't forget to let us know what you think. Of course, we have a couple new looks to the podcast. Our Sunday show has a cool new intro. This show will have its own little intro as well. And, of course, the uh, Sunday shows, we have them on video, and we'll hopefully have them streamed um, you know, live eventually Coming throughout the season. Yep. So, We're working on it. That'll do it from uh, Hockey Mountain High. Don't forget to check out our sponsors, Superbook Sports and Total Beverage in Thornton and Westminster. If you made it this far in the podcast, it was a short one. I'm not blessing your heart today, but let's make hockey for everyone. We at you.